Hello, everyone. Uh, please come in and uh, feel free to sit on the stage or just uh, find a place up here. I think we need to keep the alleys uh, clear uh, for um, fire marshal purposes. Uh, so if we could just um, come on in as, as you like. My name is Charles Tolliver. I'm in the philosophy department. There'll be two parts to this introduction. The first, I want to introduce um, Eunice Belgum and these lectures. Uh, then I'll introduce Dan Robinson, and then we have our Oxford welcoming choir here uh, that will sing a welcome song that will properly welcome Daniel Robinson to our hill. Uh, okay, to begin, um, these lectures were founded in loving memory of Eunice Belgum, who was a philosophy major here. She went on to do her master's and PhD at Harvard University in 1976. Uh, I'm going to do something unusual uh, in a minute, which is I'm going to use her own words to introduce her. Uh, but let me say a little bit more. Uh, she uh, taught at Trinity College and William and Mary, and her aunt is here, who has uh, supported, along with uh, others, this lecture series that um, while her life was cut short, these series continue her enthusiasm and passion for philosophy. And the topic of, of this year's 35th uh, lecture is um, very much appropriate. Uh, her dissertation was on weakness of the will, this puzzle about why people do things that they know to be wrong. We're still trying to figure that out uh, after 2,400 years. But she did a great job in terms of pushing it forward as well as historical scholarship. Now I'd like to read the acknowledgments that she wrote to her dissertation and eventually book published by Garland Press. And I do so because what she has here is something I wish for all of us. Namely, she talks about the enthusiasm, passion, excitement, and power that she found in philosophy through working with others, her friends, her colleagues. Um, and she also wanted philosophy to be both theoretical and practical or experiential. So I think this sets up a good model. Stand by. And as far as I know, this, this series has never been introduced, at least since I've been here in 85, with her own words. So here it is. This thesis, now book, is the result of a practical as well as a theoretical interest in the regrettably familiar phenomena of akrasia, the Greek term for otherwise known as knowing the better and doing the worse. I would like to thank friends and colleagues, indeed, even strangers, for generously contributing first-person data as well as theoretical speculations thereupon. The completion of this piece is perhaps some evidence that explanation and understanding, and even outside the physical sciences, can be an aid to control the phenomena to be explained and introduced. But more particular thanks are in order. To Frederick Stoutland, who first introduced me to the pleasures and power of philosophical thought, to John Cooper and G.E.L. Owen for their guidance to the philosophical excitement to be gained from the Greek philosophers, to the Society of Women in Philosophy for sustaining that pleasure and excitement, to my committee, Robert Nozick, Terry Irwin, no less than their encouragement than for the prompt, meticulous, helpful criticism, but my warmest and widest gratitude goes to my dear friend, Georges Ray. In his indefatigable enthusiasm for philosophy, he has taught me 
many things. His patience in discussing acrasia has improved this thesis immeasurably. So I hope you can get a feel for, and I hope this is true in your life, that whether you're taking just one philosophy course, uh, whether here or Carleton, or your major and so on, I hope you also find pleasure, excitement, and enthusiasm, and how exciting that is among friends. Now, um, Eunice's uh, aunt is here, Aunt Eunice, um, Belgium Knight, and I'd like her to stand, and I'd like us to show our appreciation for this series and this family um, at this point. Maybe if you would stand, no, 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 just her stand, and we would uh, express our uh, enthusiasm and pleasure. I'm delighted to introduce uh, Daniel Robinson of Oxford University, Georgetown University. He's giving two lectures today. The first is called Consciousness Again and Character. These are independent lectures, so um, those who are seeing this through streaming and so on, if you've missed this, well, if they're hearing it, I suppose we're all right, but hello out there. <laughs> if you have a friend who isn't here, uh, they don't have to have seen this in order to follow the second lecture. Uh, Dan Robinson is a prolific writer. He has uh, 40 books. Uh, there are about um, only uh, five of them, uh, terrific texts. Uh, one is Idle Beasts, uh, Wild Beasts and Idle Humors on the Insanity Defense. Some of my, my students are picking that up to try to understand me a little bit. <laughs> and um, I would say that in addition to his many uh, his, his, his many credentials uh, that he's won in psychology and philosophy. Um, he's also a very gifted and celebrated contributor to the teaching company. And um, I regard Dan very much as my uh, mentor and a model. Uh, when I got to the airport to meet him, I felt I had to, of course, wear my doctoral robe. <laughs> and I, I had to have a sign uh, first it just said master, and then, because uh, that's what I call him, and then it said, um, welcome master. And uh, I was there for about 20 minutes, and of course people do ask, well now, who is this master? And I said, he has come to us to spread the love of wisdom. Okay? And they, they all moved away from me. Now I think it is time for our Oxford Welcome Choir to do a proper welcome, uh, after which let's uh, thank uh, Professor Robinson for being here and we'll get the show on the road. So I welcome the welcome choir. I am certain that Kant never received a reception like that. <laughs> and I can tell you that 
the Viking presence is everywhere. <laughs> I do want to thank uh, Charles for inviting me. I, I've spent time with the students and faculty. It's an absolutely enchanting place. You should be, and I'm sure you are, very, very proud of it. And uh, I'm proud to have an opportunity to add my name to the list of those who have given these lectures before. So let me thank the college and the philosophy faculty for including me among many notable persons honoring the memory of Eunice Belgum. The roster stands as something of a who's who in philosophy. Hilary Putnam, Bas von Frossen, Jonathan Lear, Julia Annis, my ever-puckish friend Galen Strawson, and many others. In company of this sort, I will be sure to mind my place, attempting little more than a progress report on the issues on which some of my predecessors have offered brilliant commentaries. The topics I've chosen are quite well rehearsed in philosophy, consciousness, which is the subject of this talk, and then later uh, this evening, uh, character. Now, if any one of you dares to credit me with originality once I've completed my assignments, I will claim to have been systematically misunderstood. <laughs> what I plan to defend is the proposition that most of what we yearn to know about the mind and mental life is already very well known to everyone in this room and beyond, though the mode of knowing seems to be too innocent to count as knowledge. And most of what we hope to discover about the nature and the variety of character is already richly documented and re readily available in the history of human life on Earth. There are no mysteries here, no need for special tools or magnetic resonance imaging. What renders these topics vexing is not their content or properties, but their stubborn resistance to being absorbed into the developed sciences. In this respect, we gain insight into the intellectual ethos of our own age by sampling what it takes to be authoritative. Interesting implications thereupon arise to the great consternation of theory makers and to those vaunted original thinkers, of which I happily proclaim myself not to be one. The father of Scottish common sense philosophy, Thomas Reed, reminds us that theories and conjectures are the creatures of men, and nature seldom mimics, you see. I follow that. But the question nonetheless remains, how can there be a real X, and at the same time an X, seemingly beyond the reach of science? Science, of course, has been a quite protean term throughout history. Before it became the standard, comparably authoritative modes of truth-telling held pride of place. Pick a century and a defined community, and you will find epistemological authority conferred on, ready now, take notes, revelation, intuition, observation, argument, consensus, fate, skepticism, even the occasional Homeric dream demon. In each era, all sorts of debate-stopping conventions have been mastered by the best and the brightest. 
And in our own busy epoch, we tend to regard linguistic and conceptual analysis as the right way to work through the very few philosophical conundrums not already settled or soon to be settled by science, though it's unclear just which science is to have the honor. It may be physics, but it could be virology. Unless, of course, physics comes to number viruses among its own fully explained phenomena. The chapter is open on this. Well, if I do not wander too far afield, I should remind us that none of the allegedly authoritative modes of knowing ever had it within itself to establish its own authority. There is no scientific proof of the superiority of scientific knowledge over that of, say, revelation or intuition. Philosophical specialties have been crafted to do this essential work. But when all is said and done, we tend to invoke pragmatic criteria. We might do so kicking and screaming, but we do tend to invoke pragmatic criteria when picking a given method to deal with a specific problem. Mind you, if the space program had made greater progress by way of revelation than with the aid of differential equations, we all know how NASA's recruiting efforts would have proceeded. And make no mistake about it, we don't want to declare ourselves to be vulgar pragmatists, except when it counts. Well, on just such pragmatic grounds, the record of science has been so successful as to put all other modes of knowing on notice. Among the stubborn holdouts in all of this are those peculiar items generically, if always ambiguously, referred to as mental, with consciousness widely regarded as the most refractory. Attempts to solve the riddle have followed what by now are the traditional tools in the academic workshop. With one set of tools, these vexing mental items are shown to be entirely fictitious. Then there's that user's manual labeled philosophy of mind, which allows one to begin with an untested and untestable theory and then to work backwards to a set of propositions rendering the theory somehow true. Today's featured instruments are found in that large and growing section of the workshop identified as the brain sciences. As organs go, for those of you who've yet to commit your lives to a particular organ, if the choice finally boils down, say, to spleen versus brain, pick the latter, you will always have work. So many tools, but little agreement as to just what needs explaining. Now, some might protest at this point, insisting that at least one contemporary school has taken a firm position on what consciousness is. It is a brain state, and is therefore the proper subject of a new specialty. You know the name of it, or you should. Neurophilosophy. Whoever chuckled, please do apply to Oxford for... for <laughs> In response to this, I should begin by noting that far from being new, what is taken to be neurophilosophy is among the oldest of scientific ventures. 
As early as the fourth century BC, I'm closer to 80 than to 70. It, I will die with it being BC. You'll have to forgive me for this. <laughs> that we are alive in a common era, I have no doubt, but I stay with BC. <laughs> as early as the fourth century BC, evidence linking the brain to intelligence was sufficient to support explicit theories to that effect. Consider Herophilus, whose dates are 335 to 280 BC, a doctor, scientist, and teacher who established his practice in Alexandria where it was permissible to perform dissections on human cadavers. His now lost works are cited appreciatively by Galen. Herophilus was the first to distinguish the functions of the cerebellum and cerebrum and to locate intellectual functions in the brain. Hippocrates earlier and Galen later reached similar conclusions and helped to establish in the process a scientific interest in the relationship between neuroanatomy and mental life. What's especially interesting about this history is that the status of the so-called mind-body problem has remained largely unchanged over a period of two millennia during which time knowledge of the functional anatomy of the and microstructure of the nervous system has grown exponentially. Don't say it has mushroomed because mushroom is not a verb. <laughs> now, what of the slogan or motto itself? Far from being a foundational ontological claim, consciousness is a brain process is actually something of a scientistic, a scientistic bit of bravado. Massive volumes of brain tissue can be surgically removed without any marked alteration in consciousness at all. On top of this, there is that persistently undefined entity referred to as a state. I do not address here the very different claim, according to which activity in the nervous system is reliably associated with, or even causally adequate for, consciousness. To know that X causally brings about Y is not to know what Y is, but only some of the conditions sufficient to produce it. As for the brain, it's a part of the body. You must get out of the habit of thinking that the body is just this thing that sort of hangs down from the brain. It's actually a highly integrated system, you understand. <laughs> the other parts matter to even the spleen, alas. Um, <laughs> You're highly stressed and very angry. You undergo something called splenic atrophy. There's something you could be interested in and pr profitably engaged, even if you just stay with the damn spleen. You know. <laughs> the word state shares its etymology with status, with static. But neither of these terms is aptly applied to the nervous system in any living creature. In some sense, it would be permissible to regard consciousness as an episodic state, even as the dynamics of brain function reveal incessant change and alteration. In a word, consciousness is a brain state, is best located, if I may say, in a fortune cookie or a gothic mystery where we also learn such things as life is a deep river meandering toward the certainty of death. <laughs> As a phrase, it is evocative, suggesting deep, if impenetrable, wisdom. <laughs>
I think we'd probably do well uh, just by ruling it out of polite scientific conversation. I, if I'm caught ever saying that consciousness is a brain state, up the medication. <laughs> well, might we also rule out consciousness as a term fit for any scientific purpose? After all, the history of science offers useful examples of addition by subtraction. Occam's razor is one instrument designed specifically for this task. Consider the many attempts to account for phenomena in terms of the effect of the ether. Is it not obvious that if light is to be propagated through space, there must be something to carry it? The medium of choice in Victorian times was the luminiferous ether. Then Michelson and Morley contrived a means by which to measure the assumed ether wind, resulting from the relative difference in the speed of the Earth's motion and that of the ether itself. As of 1887, it began to look as if we could free physics of the ether entirely. It only added to our knowledge when we eliminated it. So too with the carefully administered tests to identify witches. I, I could keep you on the edge of your seats with the tests contrived by way of the malleus maleficarum to identify witches. The tear test, the pricking test, the flotation test, serious people, the best courts in Europe and England with seasoned lawyers, dutiful to trial procedure and rules of evidence, carefully weighed the results of these tests. Now, we were only able to rid ourselves of this business by finally accepting that there aren't any witches in the first place. You see, the problem was not a methodological problem. The, the problem is that the the ontology of the thing was empty. I know in a group this size, at least four of you not only believe in witches, but two of the four might think you're a witch. <laughs> in both of those instances, you're incorrect. <laughs> yes, postmenopausal women, especially those of marginal means and poor nutrition, do tend to float when placed in a large tub of water. As long as the test is designed to identify witches, we will make no progress toward the discovery of osteoporosis. So again, epistemic addition by ontological subtraction. Might we not therefore make comparable progress by treating the so-called problem of consciousness as akin to, say, the problem of witches or the problem of unicorns? The pseudo-problem of finding a method capable, capable of explaining what isn't there to be explained. Now, some of our predecessors grasped the nettle in just this way. Here's a famous passage from the redoubtable William James. William James is the quintessential American psychologist, philosopher. There aren't many nations in the history of the world who, who would have produced Bill James. So, all right, here's James getting to the point. <laughs> Quote, Consciousness is on the point of disappearing altogether. 
It is the name of a non-entity and has no right to a place among first principles. Those who still cling to it are clinging to a mere echo, the faint rumor left behind by the disappearing soul upon the air of philosophy. Close quote. Be done with it, you see. Well, James, of course, was not skeptical about consciousness, either his own or that of others. He was simply putting to rest the notion that the word referred to some localized thing or even some process over and against the constellation of complex processes on which most psychological states depend. Thomas Henry Huxley, famous as Darwin's bulldog, perhaps less daring than James, was not skeptical about the reality of consciousness, but considered hopeless the task of finding a scientifically tractable way of handling it. He was fully conscious of his own consciousness, even committed to the belief that it arose somehow from irritable neural tissue. But he was finally resigned to failure in any attempt to link the facts of one to the facts of the other. Thus, in his 1866 Lessons in Elementary Physiology, we find Huxley stating, quote, But what consciousness is we know not, and how it is that anything so remarkable as a state of consciousness comes about as the result of irritating nervous tissue is just as unaccountable as the appearance of the jinn when Aladdin rubbed his lamp, or as any other ultimate fact of nature. Close quote. Now, he's a great scientist, but if you think this problem here is akin to rubbing a lamp and getting a genie out, you begin to see that the task might be more daunting than you thought at the outset. I mustn't overlook Gilbert Ryle in this connection. Sometimes he's understood to be advancing some sort of reductionistic theory, but th this is mistaken. In the concept of mind, his 1949 classic, Ryle's objective was to make clear that propositions about mind and propositions pertaining to bodies must be semantically mapped in different ways, such that the two can't be in conflict. They're not drawn from the same logical space. Arriving in a flood of tears is not like arriving in a Chevrolet. Being in a state of grace may or may not also find one being in the state of South Carolina. We take as absurd a sentence of the sort, Helen is in a state of grace and South Carolina. Attempts to absorb both properties into a single category will yield not only unintended humor, but what Ryle famously referred to as a category mistake. The same mistake, one might contend, is made when assuming that, in addition to acts of perception, cognition, and intelligence, there's some other distinct category, that of the mental. On Ryle's influential account, the proper understanding of mental terms is that they refer not to a distinguishable domain of the ineffable, but to classes of intelligent or cognitive acts and dispositions to act. The goal here was to get the ghost out of the machine. I shall be arguing that my task is to get the machine out of the ghost, but that comes in a little while. To follow James and Ryle is to reach a metaphysically less troubled condition. 
no longer having to worry about a reality needing room for two radically and incommensurately different sorts of stuff. So the problem of consciousness goes away. Perhaps. I, as it happens, am constitutionally argumentative. If it is the case in principle that the grammar of mind talk and that of brain talk can't possibly be mapped onto each other, then the hopeful and busy program of neurophilosophy is simply based on a mistake. These will be two ships that just pass each other. But so too is much of what we routinely find in neurology texts and clinics. When we say that the pitch of a sound is tonotopically organized in sensory cortex, we are referring not to a metaphorical, but to an actual map, an actual mapping. Tonotopic means that, that each discernibly different part of the frequency spectrum is spatially represented in successively adjacent parts of that region of sensory cortex associated with the perception of sound. Tonotopic organization in the cortex. It's, it's an actual map, not a metaphorical map. So also with the dermatomal distribution uh, um, of sensations on the body's surface and the cephalocaudal sequence of movements tied to adjacent regions of the motor cortex. You can use a little stimulating electrode and get everything from ears wiggling to toes wiggling as you move along the motor strip. We'll know that you've done some work in the brain sciences when you know that the Isle of Ryle is not in the Caribbean. The point, of course, is that there are at least some statements in neurology that do faithfully translate specific statements about mental life. As for William James's faint rumor, David Chalmers says that consciousness, quote, poses the most baffling problem in the science of the mind. There is nothing that is harder to explain, close quote. So as faint rumors go, consciousness is proven to be surprisingly durable. Its nature, sources, and effects now generating whole institutes, not to mention the generous subventions that such endeavors insatiably crave. Shall I put it crassly? There's money in this, you know. Not a bad thing, but, but if you plan to earn your fortune, by saying that issues in philosophy of mind are not to be absorbed into some more foundational science, you'll go broke. <laughs> have a rich uncle. To mention David Chalmers is to invoke the specter of his weird, every undergraduate loves this, and you should, philosophical zombies, officially dubbed P-zombies and featured in Chalmers' The Conscious Mind. Now, time doesn't allow me to venture too far into the zombie world. But if, as a thought experiment, uh, it is interesting, it is so for this reason. Powerful arguments have been offered in defense of the claim that reality is finally and solely physical. There is no additional mental reality. Light is not carried by a luminiferous ether, 
and consciousness, consciousness is not carried by a mental ether. Yet we surely can imagine a world in which for each of us there is a zombie clone, physically identical to us but lacking consciousness. You can imagine that. After all, everything we do, from making toast to flying to the moon, could be done through a series of movements not accompanied by consciousness. There's no reason to believe that IBM's Deep Blue made chess moves consciously. P.S. There's also no reason to believe that Deep Blue made chess moves, but that's, a, that, 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 that's, another, that's another topic, alas. Uh, so a theoretical zombie world may match ours physically, though utterly lacking in the stuff of the mental. Accordingly, a theory that would restrict reality to the physical must admit of a counterexample, and hence physicalism is false. Now, it's, if it were that easy, we, you know, we'd, we'd, we would be out of work. But I mean, that would be one argument toward the conclusion that physicalism fails. There have been other strategies for assessing physicalism, only to find it failing again in the matter of consciousness. For a time, the incredibly frequently cited Mary problem invented by Frank Jackson, did seem decisive. Jackson sets the matter this way, and he writes it so clearly that I, I think it's best just to read Jackson on Jackson's Mary problem. Quote, Mary is a brilliant scientist who is, for whatever reason, forced to investigate the world from a black and white room via a black and white television monitor. She specializes in the neurophysiology of vision and acquires, let us suppose, all the physical information there is about what goes on when we see ripe tomatoes or the sky and use terms like red, blue, and so on. What will happen when Mary is released from her black and white room or is given a colored television monitor? Will she learn anything or not? It seems just obvious that she will learn something about the world and our visual experience of it. But then it is inescapable that her previous knowledge was incomplete. But she had all the physical information. Ergo, there is more to have than that. And physicalism is false. So that, that's a, a second uh, counter. Jackson would come to retract this claim and with penitential sobriety would embrace physicalism. I don't regard his reasons for this as at all compelling. Actually, the Mary tale was overdrawn to begin with, leaving room for criticisms based on the notion that being reared in a black and white world resulted in the atrophy of certain necessary mechanisms. You, you've got the picture. I mean, you can do this till the cows come home. Well, Jackson might have given us a Mary who knew nothing about Bermuda onions. She knew everything about them physically and chemically, and structurally, cellularly. But she hadn't tasted one. Now, would her discovery be better understood? That is, now she bites into one. And now she knows what a Bermuda onion tastes like. You got it. 
Now suppose we apply the objections that were raised to Jackson. We would, we would have to explain all this as Mary at this point, having suffered life in a Bermuda onion deprived environment, this isn't going to work. I mean, you'd, you'd get a Tootsie Roll deprived environment and you'd get a menthol deprived environment. Jackson should have held on to this. The main point is something of a truism, not to mention a brute fact. An exhaustive knowledge of the laws of harmony will not generate a sound, nor can a complete description of the classical pain pathways result in pain. One with sufficient philosophical agility can devise any number of accounts that would seem to spare the physicalistic theory of conscious experience, but here we have a gap that simply refuses to close. Mary now knows what a red rose looks like and that's the end of it, which of course it isn't. Well, every month the philosophy journals will be stoked to reheat some antique contribution to philosophy of mind, the current edition claiming for itself a new turn of phrase or some high-tech backup from studies of mice brains or something. Clinicians, I should note, have a very, uh, they have a term for this very strong tendency to continue to repeat activities marked by repetitive failure. The term is OCPD, and it stands for Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder. It does become a badge of merit when its productions are favorably peer-reviewed by fellow sufferers. <laughs> to stay with this clinical model, let me take down some of the relevant parts of the patient's life history. Before consciousness became this baffling problem, it was already rather odd as a word. Talk of consciousness, per se, is actually of relatively recent origin. I bet you didn't think so. As I understand it, I don't think the Chinese had it, I mean the word, not consciousness, <laughs> uh, 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 till the 19th century. Locke's use of the term in an essay concerning the human understanding was something of a departure from convention. For Locke, the word refers to an individuated arena, call it the mind, filled up with entities, call them ideas, and accessed introspectively. Previously, the English word was understood more literally in terms of its Latin roots, cum scio, which conveys joint or shared knowledge. The Oxford English Dictionary offers as the earliest use, quote, knowing or sharing the knowledge of anything together with another, privy to anything with another, close quote, and supplies the relevant Latin phrase Alicui alicuius rei conscius, one another sharing knowledge of something. Hobbes understood the word in just this older sense. Hobbes says, quote, where two or more men know of one and the same fact, they are said to be conscious of it, one another. I should tell you, when the French got around to translating Locke's essay, they weren't quite sure how to render consciousness. By the way, there are some wonderful stories about this. Um, 
Locke wrote a very famous essay concerning the human understanding. It's a classic in philosophy. All philosophy students should read it and will read it. But there are some counterintuitive elements in this, particularly when he attempts to reduce the nature of personal identity to a congeries of memories and so forth, such that if, in fact, you had had an entirely different chain of memories installed, you would be a different person. He offers, as an illustration of this, a prince and a cobbler who go to sleep at night, and in the middle of the night, the memories of the prince are moved into the mind of the cobbler and vice versa. Locke says, I grant you that on arising the next day, they will be the same man, but not the same person. So it's something of a memory theory of personal identity. Now look, um, we always need artists to keep us honest. Um, and so there were those in Locke's time who thought that the pretensions of the Royal Society, the scientific pretensions, were biting off rather more than they could chew and scaring the hell out of children and small animals. So they formed a little group to do a job on some of these claims, and they named their group after a character in Arbuthnot, Dr. Scriblerus. They named themselves the Scriblerians. Name one Scriblerian for me. No? You know them. Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift, what is Laputa? It's an island with scientists up there. They can, they've got a technique for extracting sunlight from cucumbers, and with enough government subsidies, they probably can get enough of the stuff to sell it off cheaply. And if you protest what they're doing up there, that island just comes down and flattens you. So, so the Scriblerian said, well, this is quite interesting. So Smith is shot or stabbed. And as he falls to the floor, he has some recollections of an assault that he didn't have previously. By the time he hits the floor, he's a different person because a different chain of, you, you begin to see the story. Well, the Scriblerians had some fun with this, but, uh, but Locke stayed with the word consciousness, and we've stayed with it ever since. I just want you to know that it was in the 17th century that it takes on the character that would make it a philosophical problem today, that it was understood in rather different terms earlier. Now, not only is consciousness, as we use the word, of relatively recent vintage, but there is, according to certain accounts, surprisingly little in ancient Greek philosophy that anticipates our own philosophical interest in it. More than 40 years ago, Wallace Matson asked a question it's a paper that classicists still do properly pay attention to. Quote, why isn't the mind-body problem ancient? On this point, I believe Matson and others have underestimated what Aristotle especially was seeking to explain regarding mental life and the elements he would have taken to be relevant to an explanation. Even in his time, there were versions of what are called modularity theories. Against those who would have discrete parts of the soul desiring or fearing or being bold, Aristotle offered a schoolmaster's correction. Quote, to say that it's the soul which is angry is as if we were to say that it's the soul that weaves or builds houses. It is doubtless better to avoid saying that the soul pities or learns or thinks 
and rather to say that it's the man who does this with a soul. From this passage, it should be clear that Aristotle would be no more inclined to say that a brain builds houses than he was about souls doing it. We do it. What is clear in the passage is Aristotle's understanding that human activities arise not from parts of bodies, but from human beings capable of developing the means by which to secure intended ends. Aristotle was not guilty of what my friend Peter Hacker has dubbed the Muriological fallacy. Now on the specific question of whether Aristotle was alert to the special nature of consciousness, I, I told some of the students today, uh, some years ago I was giving a lecture at Princeton to the politics department on issues in law. And they were taking me to supper after the talk and while we were walking over to one of these dreadful restaurants, um, one of the senior faculty members asked what I was working on, and at the time I was writing a book on Aristotle. He said, well, why are you writing a book on Aristotle? And I said, well, I have an interest in the history of ideas, and I thought I'd begin alphabetically. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, on the specific question of whether Aristotle was actually alert to the special nature or problem of consciousness, his treatise on the soul leaves little doubt. The question has been addressed directly by Victor Caston, who notes that Aristotle clearly took consciousness to be both an intrinsic feature of mental life and a higher order process, as we use that phrase. Caston cites passages in Aristotle's treatise on the soul, where Aristotle states that we perceive that we are perceiving. This is taken up chiefly in chapter 2, book 3, where Aristotle says, quote, since we can perceive that we see and hear, it must be either by sight itself or by some other sense. And either the process will go on ad infinitum, or a sense must perceive itself and its activity. So the conscious awareness is built into the process itself. You don't need something separate from it. If to perceive what we're perceiving we had required a separate mental power, then yet another such power would have been required, allowing us to perceive that we perceive that we are perceiving, etc., etc. Aristotle doesn't do silly things like that. The way out of the bind is to accept that perception carries conscious awareness with it, intrinsically, and that perception and thought possess a unifying power over the registration of different and multiple objects and properties that are presented. Noting that, quote, it is impossible to pass judgment on separate objects by separate faculties, Aristotle adopts the common sense understanding that thought and experience are unified. If hot were judged by a hot sensing faculty and cold by a cold sensing faculty, then neither of these or both together could generate the judgment hotter than. Aristotle was not aloof to mind-body issues but he clearly did not have what we take to be the problem of consciousness. This is not because he died in 322 BC without any possibility to have been improved by, say, Daniel Dennett. He did not have our problem of consciousness and this because he was not phobic about gaps. Consciousness for us is problematical because we are committed to one or another version 
of the maxim according to which physics is complete. And this creates some sort of explanatory gap when we approach consciousness in the spirit of physicists. We strive to insert into the gap the right combination of metaphysical refinements and scientific data, hopeful that the mix will absorb consciousness into the orderly world of things already understood. Then we will have causal closure and all ghosts will have been evicted from the machine. Truth be told, there's a tendency to be embarrassed by not embracing physicalism. Taking consciousness to be the hardest of problems is to admit to a failure to establish a credible, coherent account of it, a satisfactory explanation, a scientifically sound gap filler. It's also, if only implicitly, to claim to have solved problems judged to be less difficult. You see, when you say that consciousness is the most difficult of all problems, that has to be in relation to some problems not nearly as difficult. It's to admit of a certain frustration that whatever succeeded with easier problems isn't proving to be serviceable here. But this seems to me to be all too metaphysically complacent. Take any phenomenon. Consider birth certificates or the breakfast menu. Uh, try to fit these things into a framework that permits a rank ordering in terms of how hard it is to explain something. Well, what would a thorough explanation of the breakfast menu look like? This whole thing, this would be a text on culture, gastronomy. Uh, uh, the founder of the French cuisine was Jean-Antoine Briat Savarin, a young contemporary of Napoleon's whose mother was said to be the finest cook in the south of France. And she must have been dazzling. It's said that on the last night of her life, at the end of the fifth of a six-course meal she had prepared, as she grabbed her chest and fell to the ground in the throes of a terminal heart attack, her last words were, quick, bring the dessert. Ah. <laughs> uh, What sort of framework do we have in mind? What is it about consciousness that renders it more difficult to explain, as I say, than, say, breakfast? I, I know how folksy this sounds. That, that's a positive. It, it, it wouldn't be more profound if I gave this to you in Latin or Greek. You, you'd just be more impressed. But it's the same question, you know. How do you account for breakfast? What criteria have to be satisfied for us to be satisfied that something has been explained. Unencumbered by metaphysical scruples, we might be inclined to say that an event is explained when we've identified the conditions necessary and sufficient to bring it about. The so-called so manipulability criterion as a, an, an account of causal dependence. Reassurance here is, is something that quickly gives way to frustration once we recognize the difficulty attaching itself to such terms as condition, necessity, sufficiency, especially when these are to be incorporated into something called causally efficacious. In that wide and various domain of physical entities, just what is it that qualifies as a condition? And is a given condition under all conceivable circumstances ever safely to be sufficient to bring about an event. 
Then, of course, there's the additional ambiguity surrounding the notion of something bringing something else about. Seeking authority in such matters, we might be inclined to turn to, let's say, Isaac Newton. But in that case, we would quickly find ourselves abandoning all claims to contemporary trendiness. Newton was a consistent advocate of explanations based on, yes, Aristotle's notion of final causes. Yes, celestial dynamics is governed by the laws of universal gravitation, but in attempting to explain the whole picture, Newton in his Principia takes recourse to, of all things, quote, the design and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being, close quote. Apparently, he was in the thrall of Professor Dawkins' God delusion. Happily freed from such antique superstitions, we reach instead for mechanistic modes of explanation. Thus, an event is brought about by some mechanism. This remains a rather lazy way of framing explanations, where there isn't any evidence of a mechanism at all. But the habit of assuming mechanisms is not new. Early in the 18th century, such notions were tied to the presumed physical influx, the physicus influxus, in which the putatively causal entity, watch me now because I need an audiovisual device here, my hands, uh, the putatively causal entity somehow actually empties itself into that which it is bringing about. It's a physical influx. You see, there are certain hand movements that are shorthand for I have no idea what on earth I'm talking about. So you, you, so you, do, you do things like this, you wave it around a bit, you know. You, um, it becomes choreographed in a way. Well, it's a physical influxus, you know. If I said it's a physical influxus, you'd look at me like that. But if I say, you know, it's a physical influxus, it's, it's supposed to add something to the account, which it doesn't do. Little thought was given as to how the supply of the stuff is replenished. You see, once I've physically influxed into something, I might need more of it to keep the damn thing moving. Where am I going to get all of this? Don't ask me for a list of the leading scientific commentators who accepted this, by the way. How might there be action at a distance? What is it about a property that permits or prevents it from being the source or the receptacle of such an influx? Actually, it was Leibniz who first spelled out the terms of the influx theory and then proceeded to argue against it. His criticism is still timely in that today's mechanistic approaches to mental function stubbornly assume some means by which the physics of the nervous system brings about events of a radically different nature. I suggest to the philosophers present that this, after all, is what epiphenomenalism is all about. Make no mistake, epiphenomenalism is a physicalistic thesis, trading in a counterfeit form of dualism. It is physicalism grown shamefaced, and Huxley himself acknowledged as much. Philosophical materialists abhor a gap, but attempts to fill it with mechanisms have been less than convincing. 
Suspending skepticism, we might simply grant the required mechanisms, physics now again seeming to be complete. With the ontological part of the story thus settled, the gap should disappear, but it doesn't. Here are these ions moving across the cell membrane, and here is Gretchen complaining of toothache. We accept the mechanism, but it still can't bridge the divide. Nonetheless, Daniel Dennett speaks for many, perhaps for most, when he declares in his book Consciousness Explained, a book dubbed by many critics as Consciousness Ignored, that, <laughs> that consciousness is not an it found here or there in the brain, but, quote, now you'll know what it is by way of Professor Dennett, various events of content fixation occurring in various places at various times in the brain. Of course, no one had ever suggested that consciousness was some sort of discrete entity with a specific location. And what might events of content fixation refer to if not the ability to maintain attention on specific objects and events? Content fixation is one of those hyphenated scientistic terms by which the magician hopes to make mental entities disappear. Content fixation, do you see? <laughs> All hope is not to be abandoned in some still and utterly elusive way. A thorough mathematical account of reality might come to include an account of whatever it is that yields consciousness at the phenomenological level. The equations of quantum mechanics provide what physicists take to be a complete description of the known physical world. Michael Lockwood has, in my judgment, offered a quite searching account of the manner in which consciousness itself could be included within and reveal a yet fuller comprehension of quantum mechanics itself. At the center of notions of quantum consciousness is the liberation of the physical from primitive notions of matter as such. To the extent that our current descriptions of brain function are tied to the older materialist mechanist concepts drawn from an older macrophysics, it's not surprising that there's no similarity between phenomenological reality and thoughtless extended bodies. But the quantum world is different, possessing enough that is mysterious to begin to look like a candidate for the provenance of consciousness. In my estimation, Lockwood has offered a coherent and responsible account of the manner in which quantum mechanics might relate to the nature and limits of personal experience. This is too far afield of my task today. I note it to underscore the primitive nature of mechanistic accounts, do you see? We're still trying to do this work with balls rolling down inclined planes. It's not the way to go. An old man told you that, believe me. It, if you could do it that way, I'd be out there with balls rolling down inclined plane day and night. I don't sleep much anyway. <laughs> in search of a plausible and convincing explanation, we might follow Aristotle's lead in the matter of consciousness and ask directly, what is it for? I once uh, I gave a talk at the University of Miami on consciousness, different from this talk, and um, the talk was titled Consciousness, Who Needs It? 
because I was going to develop the zombie thing. And anything we do with consciousness presumably could be done without it. You could have cats saved from burning buildings and so forth. And it dawned on me that I seemed to be lapsing into a childhood Manhattan motive of locution, consciousness, who needs it? I said, I might come back next year and give a talk titled Ethics, Who Cares? Uh, <laughs> um, well, what is consciousness for? Let's turn again to William James, always serviceable in matters of this sort. And here he has a certain kinship with Lockwood. In Principles of Psychology, William James speculated that were it not for mental states, the hair-trigger instability of the brain would descend into chaos. In his characteristically jaunty way, James put it like this, quote, the performances of a high brain are like dice thrown forever on a table. Unless they be loaded, what chance is there that the highest number will turn up oftener than the lowest? All this said of the brain as a physical machine, pure and simple. Can consciousness increase its efficiency by loading its dice? Such is the problem. So James is already anticipating something of an information metric, a probabilistic or uh, 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 an entropic uh, metric as perhaps bridging the, the gap. This is one answer to the question of just what consciousness is for, though it leaves unsettled what it is. I don't think James's brain control theory has quite the appeal as it might have had a century ago, though there seems to be a vague anticipation of the relevance of what we now recognize as quantum probability states. However, we have any number of complex hair trigger systems that are very carefully and precisely regulated without the control functions requiring consciousness of any kind. Again, what is consciousness for? Where shall I begin? There would seem to be little evolutionary point to consciousness except as an aid to planning a future. But I must be clear on this. What registers in consciousness moment by moment is gone before anything can be done about it, you see? Having some means by which to store or preserve such happenings is also pointless unless the record is to be of use at some later time. Metaphorically speaking, and within the arguably relevant framework of evolutionary psychology, what counts in consciousness is a past that can be brought into it as a means by which to engage the future often the immediate future. Consciousness thus understood is a link in the process of planning and is distinct from both memory and mere awareness. To be aware is to be in contact with the present. To be consciously aware is to be disposed toward all that might follow based on all that has preceded. Nonetheless, an entity might plan without the benefit of consciousness. Deep Blue's chess moves are organized on the basis of likely replies by an opponent. Planning suggests conscious deliberation, but as I say, there are at least arguable counterexamples in which consciousness need not be posited. Think again of the P-zombie, conceived as possessing a record of past events used to program a course of future action. 
Briefly put, consciousness is not needed by a chess grandmaster, if all one means by that is an entity that seldom loses chess matches. So something more ambitious must be invoked to arrive at a better sense of the part played by consciousness where it is present. I should think it uncontroversial to claim that only a conscious being has an adequate warrant for concluding that there are conscious minds other than one's own. What I mean by this is that consciousness seems to be the precondition for ascribing mental life to others, for taking others to be relevantly like ourselves. Consider a world in which only one person had pain receptors and the experience of pain. How could others know that they were causing pain in that person? We ascribe to others such sentiments, motives, desires, and intentions as we are able to harbor ourselves. The child experiments with such ascriptions when interacting with dolls and pets. To this extent, consciousness reaches back to the original pre-Lockean sense of the term, that of something knowingly shared. Consciousness thus renders meaningful the grounding of responsibility, that of holding oneself and others responsible where such would not be the case in instances of sleepwalking, hypnotic trance, drug-induced states, P-zombies, etc. Consciousness in this way is the starting point of a moral and civic psychology. The forms of life made possible by consciousness are only tangentially captured by terms such as subjective experience, especially as these reach little beyond the rudiments of visual and auditory sensations. I should think that the distinctive task of a science of consciousness would be a credible and systematic account of the manner in which knowledge, desire, belief, and judgment come to be integrated into action plans by entities that have an interest and that take an interest in themselves and others. This science is not to be confused with brain science. It is rather more like that political science advanced by Aristotle as he attempted to establish the conditions essential to a flourishing life. If this is the goal, the major obstacle to scholarship is distraction. Distractions are not always frivolous. Sometimes the demands imposed on thought and judgment are so severe that we turn to more tractable projects and then ease conscience by convincing ourselves that all this will get us back on track. Moreover, we often make great progress with these alternative undertakings, and by the same rationalization, take this as if it were progress in our original mission. Conscious life is a unique feature of living things. It is, as it were, the first rather than the final frontier, for it sets the meets and bounds of all other frontiers. It has not been explained by the brain sciences. Rather, and owing to the powerful distraction that is brain science, we tend now to underestimate its uniqueness. To be conscious is to be able to locate oneself not only in a given context, but in other conceivable contexts. What, after all, is imagination, if not consciousness supplying its own content? But I go on too long, as if unaware of your patient expectation that this tale might have a moral. To wit, it is in the actual lived life of real persons that a human science 
find its challenge and its data. The valid human science is that very folk psychology, ironically depreciated by many, who in the absence of folk psychology would have no subject at all. But, but if, I, if I might just thank the chorus, the Oxford chorus. I, I should tell you that in three weeks I'll be giving my, my first uh, uh, lectures of term on Thomas Reed's critique of David Hume. And you've now supplied me with an opener for that lecture. And it's going to be, as they sit there, that I could be back in the States at St. Olaf's College, where when I come in to speak, I'm greeted with song. <laughs> well, we have uh, time for questions, comments, as you like. Um, somebody just say one thing that uh, Dan Robinson has uh, often said that uh, the best, even the best philosophy should end not with a period, but a semicolon, and then to be continued. And he actually did his last book on consciousness, it, it does end with the semicolon. Oh, I must, I must tell you that, the, yeah, the, the copy editor called up and she said, I don't know if you caught this, Professor Robinson. Do you know you, you, your manuscript, you entered the book with a semicolon, we, we changed it to a period. I said, no, you haven't. <laughs> So uh, you mentioned that if consciousness was sort of a, a, a collection of, of memories, that as someone got new memories, such as uh, being assaulted and falling to the ground, they would become a new person. Um, but when we, I, I think about this almost uh, in, in a, we, we have a similar situation in science where like, for example, if, you, if I add salt to a beaker of water, it changes the salinity, but if I add salt to the ocean, it doesn't change the ocean's salinity at any significant degree. So we almost treat the, we have the system and then the universal atmosphere, um, which doesn't change significantly, but it can change over time. But any one little blip isn't, gonna ch isn't going to make significant changes. So might consciousness act in a similar way? Well, now look, if you're treating being assaulted by a knife-wielding maniac who has just sent you toward the next world as one of a number of memories that, you know, uh, sort of indifferently uh, merge into an ocean of previous memories. I, I, I would claim that, that um, your weighting scale for memories and mine would be, would be different. Uh, but, but, on the gen but on the general point, that if personal identity, if you treat personal identity as made up of a very, very large ensemble of recorded experiences, then the scriblarians were just being nags because obviously that whole body, that oceanic body of memories against a few little things that in some sense answer to Locke's description certainly is not going to change personal identity. That I think being assaulted and being sent on to the next life would be a, a game-changing 
for for my identity in, in many ways. It would it would change perhaps my outlook on my life. So Certainly, I, when I you got to the next place, uh, right. yeah. I, I don't think I would call, call that, that a blip. Th Thomas Reed, of course, got to the point directly when he said that uh, having a recollection of having done something no no more makes you the person who. Uh, asylums are filled with people who put their hand inside their their jacket and lament the fact that they lost in Belgium in the Battle of Waterloo. But the fact that they have a vivid recollection of having lost the Battle of Waterloo doesn't make every one of them Napoleon. So the idea that you can constitute a personal identity with no more than memory struck Reed as something that could, wouldn't quite work. The issue of personal identity remains an interesting issue in, in philosophy. There are volumes, anthologies devoted to it. It's a non-trivial issue. You see what the problem is, don't you? In, in a system like this, constantly changing, taste buds are new every end days, that sort of thing. How do you get an enduring personal identity in a system that is in constant flux? Every cell of your body is different from the cells your body had, except for the central nervous system neurons, uh, w when you were born. Th th there is a continuity of identity over time in a system in which there is no such continuity, and that, that's a, a problem. It's something we, we worry about, work on, think about. Now, we have a Hume scholar in the room, and of course she probably thinks that Hume made all the necessary corrections on this and, and uh, provided a much better account of personal identity, particularly with, uh, with the parade formation. Here's the question. How do you maintain a continuity in the face of change? And Hume offers as one example, parade formation. Every so many steps, a particular parader, military person steps out, is replaced by another. You keep the continuity of the formation even as you change the individual participants. So I say this is a live and interesting subject. All right, we have a, another question here. Yes, Max. Um, kind of going off that um, discussion of personal identity being affected by memory, then to what degree do you think individuals have control over their own personal identities, or is it all just determined by experiences? Uh, I, I tried to legislate a change of terminology in some absolutely brilliant papers cited by no one. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> um, I, I thought it, it would be useful to make distinctions between and among the terms self, self-identity, and personal identity. Why? Suppose you go into a room filled with strangers. They know absolutely nothing about you. The way the English language works, we would say that with respect to that group, you do not have any personal identity. They don't know who you are. You, on the other hand, might be very well known to everybody in the room, but you're suffering from amnesia. So you don't have a self-identity, but you have a robust personal identity in that you are socially well known to those surrounding you, but you don't know who you are. Now then there's this other entity, which I would have referred to as self. You may be totally amnesic and have no self-identity, you may be totally amnesic in a room filled with people who know nothing about you and therefore have no personal identity. But you do know that you are. So there can be the preservation of selfhood even in the absence of self-identity and personal identity. 
Now, I thought this was a, an improvement in the nomenclature and totally underestimated. Once, once scholars latch on to a lingo, they will keep it. it. You just have to change a lot of things to change the word. Well, we're not going to change that. And that has created a great deal of confusion because we, we can provide very good accounts of personal identity. Show me your driver's license, you know, your social security card, etc., etc. We know how to fingerprints, G DNA. But what makes the, the problem an interesting problem is that you've retained this understanding of who you are over a series of, of cellular changes that are second by second. And from a physicalistic point of view, that, that's, that's difficult to count for. Oh, right. Uh, uh, Professor Huff and then uh, Kevin. Yes, yes. Okay. Towards the end of your talk, you, you seem to uh, be defending the idea that uh, consciousness is for sociality, for being social. For being um, civic, I would say. Excuse me? I, I would think more in civic than in me civic. merely social. That was actually my question, because to say for social, you can include ants and yeah, a variety right. of other things. No, I meant civic. But I was interested in, interested in the particular kind of social that you think. Do you think that's where what consciousness, is that a sort of just so story about where it might have come from? Or is it just a useful aspect of it? Well, I, I have a, a, a question of this sort. When I think of things brought about by what we're pleased to call human initiative, imaginably these things could have been constructed by some deep blue kind of technology supplied by extraterrestrials. And you could see the cathedral at Chartres, the whole routine, the Sistine Chapel, and, uh, and some modern art too. Where's Jill? Yeah. So, so. So, so, the, so, so one could look at all of those productions and say, well, what place is there for consciousness? Since all this can be brought about, you can bring about, uh, quote, caring for those in need, doing surgery, etc. To a first approximation, it seems to me that, that uh, an answer to the question, what is consciousness for, is multi-staged first. It's the basis upon which I ascribe a mental life to others, uh, by inference. Um, second, in ascribing a mental life to others, I supply that mental life with sufficient content to bear the weight of responsibility. I add to that a set of expectations, a set of desires, conditioned by the plausible assumptions I make regarding the mental life and the moral life of responsibility-bearing, mentally-equipped others. Now, as this starts to flesh itself out, one begins to see the possibility of an ordered state, etc. Not, not an anteep not a beehive, etc. Uh, can I do any more than that? I am an old chap. I can't do any more than that. 
you're quite a young chap. You can do tons of things with that. Um, so I, I am in that phase, you know. I, I, I said to groups before that m my life divides itself remarkably in two 25-year sections. I spent so much time on the biophysics of vision and brain function and so forth, about 25 years of that. Um, so the first 25 of those years, I was devoted to how does it work? And then the next 25 years have been devoted to what does it mean? But now I'm at the point in life where the question is, why do I care? <laughs> I, d I do care, but uh, th this is the best I can do with consciousness. I told you at the outset that um, th there isn't anything original here. I, I, I want to raise certain challenges ag against what is beginning to look like a kind of received wisdom that isn't really very wise. But so your two talks are related. Yes, they are indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Char Charles uh, didn't know that. Mar mar marginally, yeah. <laughs> we have a young chap here, uh, Cameron. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to touch on your um, talk earlier about um, the idea of personal identity and self. And in that, you discuss this idea that if a person with amnesia walked into a room, for instance, they would know that they would exist. However, um, maybe you could provide a counter-argument to that in the idea of, let's say, the sick boy, Timmy, who was raised in a box, literally with no social contact whatsoever. He doesn't speak, read. He only knows basic emotions and fears, which are programmed mainly into his chemicals and his feelings and things like that. He then comes out of that box. Does he then know that he exists? Because he has not been socially conditioned to know that he exists. Well, uh, that, but uh, that, you see, that begs the question. I, I, would, I don't begin with the assumption that an awareness of myself as an existent is the result of a social conditioning. Um, I, I want to answer responsibly. Um, there are degrees of neuropathy, of, of uh, neurological uh, impoverishment. I mean, it's one thing to talk about a feral child, but you've described a situation that goes well beyond someone raised by wolves, where questions of the sort, does this entity possess X, Y, or Z, may actually be, be not intelligibly related to, to any evidence the entity in question can, can provide. So this is something one does on a, I, I should think, on a case-by-case -case basis. The question I would ask is this, if there's still surviving nociceptive capabilities, the thalamus is functioning, and you stick a pin in the sole of the foot and get a wincing thing, does the entity know that the experience is the entity's experience and not some other entity's experience? But I, I think trying to come up with the, solving the criterion problem with respect to self-awareness is, is, is rather difficult. It's always going to be inarguable sort of thing. It's a very fascinating question. I have no answer to it. Um, we have room so far to talk. I see one other question. Uh, oh, um, the, uh, yes, and then you go to the Prime Minister. 
Uh, yes. Oh, Professor. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. sorry I'm oh, there you are. Okay. No, no, no. That's all right. I think the first time he told you a little white lie about who broke into the cookie jar or something, he <laughs> probably was quite well aware of the fact that you have this obsession with ferreting out his vices and making life uncomfortable um, and refusing to allow him to live the villainous criminal life of childhood. Uh, that would be my guess. So. Um, these experiments have been done, you know, will one monkey deceive another as to the location of a goody of some kind? And um, I do wish they wouldn't clap these primates up into such quarters and so forth. I mean, we're primates. Do it with us, for goodness sake. You, you, you make the price right, anybody will get into a cage. Um, No, folk psychology provides the subject. Right, but it, mean, it doesn't settle it. it, it, yeah, it but I mean, would a better way to study consciousness be something like phenomenology? Or well, I, I, I wouldn't make a sharp distinction between phenomenology properly conceived and, and a folk psychology. Uh, here's what I want to get at. I can leave you with this. It, it'll, it'll say a lot. Um, I used to hate it when people began sentences this way, and I find I'm doing it more and more. <laughs> when I was your age, by the way, I can say that to just about anybody in this room. Um, I had an interest, interest is not the right word, I had an obsession. Freud says, each man has a devil. In Schiller's terms, a Mephistophelian compulsion in whose service he knows no limits. Now, F Freud's compulsions are better left unstated. <laughs> but my interest was the visual process. I lived it, ate it, slept it 24-7. You get it? I was a featured speaker at the International Biophysics Congress in my 20s. I, I, I knew the stuff. I knew it. Loved it. One of my professors was one of the great 20th century figures in vision, Professor Clarence Graham. He would very often say in seminar, we were all fellows there, remember boys, we're interested in vision, not seeing. All right, now, now, now in some of my research concerned with inhibitory mechanisms at the retinal level, you present a dark adapted eye, 
with a 20 millisecond flash at an eight degree eccentricity with respect to the fovea. Coherent light delivered by a Maxwellian optical bench. You follow that with an annulus of greater duration and slightly greater intensity and you find an interval where the second one renders the first one masked. Now you provide a third annulus sufficient to inhibit the second and you get disinhibition of the first. And that eliminates an erasure theory of backward masking. Right, hold on. When do you think is the next time in the history of the human race that someone dark adapted for 30 minutes with their chin in a chin rest and their head against a forehead restraining device and a dim red fixation patch will have a light delivered to an eight degree eccentricity with respect to the fovea as they watch a 20 millisecond flash of light delivered by Maxwellian optics. Answer to the question, it will not happen in the future of the world. Planet Earth will suffer the heat death. This will never happen, all right? Folk psychology begins with the assumption that we're really interested in seeing. And whether or not we will be able to understand that by knowing all about vision is an open question. Scientistic approaches begin with the assumption that if you know everything about the visual process, there's nothing in seeing that's left over. Okay. There's no exit uh, him. Um, I'll send you a song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for coming. It was an excellent